0: This is the Territory Story Podcast with Leon Logan Nathan and Peter Gowers. Thanks to Opie Dennis Digital Marketing, your local digital marketing agency. Hello, everyone, and welcome to what is probably going to be the last episode of the Territory Story Podcast for 2023. My name is Leon Logan Nathan. I've been away for a few weeks, and my co-host Peter Gowers has been doing a stellar job in my absence uh, holding the fort. So I'm going to attempt uh, to do that this evening. So bear with me uh, while I uh, (laughs) stumble through the uh, intros and outros. Uh, Also missing in action from this episode is our weekly guest, our special guest, I should say, Mr. Chris Walsh, who is, I'm not going to say sunning himself in uh, Canada because he's doing quite the opposite. It's minus 35 centigrade, I believe, where he is uh, somewhere in Canada. On a well deserved break. So you've got me, and uh, uh, and in Chris's absence, you've got uh, his um, trusty sidekick, if I can call him that, Mr. David Wood. David, welcome back to the podcast.
1: Thanks very much, Leon. It's a pleasure to be here. I feel a little bit demeaned by being referred to as a trusty sidekick, but. <laughs> <laughs> Probably true though. Some things you know, don't forget about yourself.
0: Oh dear! Yeah, well, uh, David, you are the uh, you are the quiet one behind the scenes there, and you do pump out these articles from time to time. We we sometimes see your name attached to it. But most of the time, it comes out as uh, as a uh, anti-independent staff, um, so sort of leaves it up to one's imagination who's actually behind it.
1: Well, I am the inter- independent staff at the minute, so everything is mine. <laughs>
0: okay. All right, mate. Well, we've got a, we we don't have a, a huge contingent of stories uh, this week, but um, let's see how we go with what we've got. The first one to kick off uh, the podcast is uh, new powers for civilians to search for and seize alcohol considered under legislative review. Now, this is one that you've actually written, Dave, so um, take us through it. Yeah, this was
1: interesting. The government put out a press release uh, sometime this week announcing that it, as part of a th- three-year re- uh, review, which was into the Liquor Act of 2019, like it's written in the legislation that after three years that it needed to be opened up to a review, but, but the government has also taken submissions on this and had asked for ideas about what people, stakeholders especially, wanted to to be considered with the changes. And they're they talking specifically about what's in the legislation at the minute, but they, they were opening it up to some new ideas. So um, you wouldn't have learned all this from just the government's press release. They they talked about some of the the, the major changes that came about with the 2019, 2019 updates, but I think the interesting things digging behind the scene and looking at the discussion paper that, that was referenced at the bottom of the press release but informs what is also going to be included in the review was really interesting. And to, just to summarise, some of those things were issues looking at the ways of dealing with noise from alcohol venues, including live music, also the transfer of licences, different liquor accords, changes to the enforcement of secondary supply of alcohol in remote communities, the extension of the monetor monetarium of takeaway licenses beyond August 31 next year, uh the banned drinkers register, and the expansion of search and seizure powers for alcohol as well, which uh, was really one of the si- significant ones that I saw.
0: Okay.
1: And I, I say significant because it, it was um I found it interesting that the government is considering or when I say considering, they're, they're open to considering this as an as an idea during the review that was put forth by other parties that uh, giving powers, special powers, to be able to search people for alcohol and then seize alcohol, even if it's not open, to transit officers, public housing safety officers, park rangers, council rangers, and contact licensed security officers, so like bouncers, I guess that would be a short term, a uh, slang for, or, uh, but there is um, one clause where some fine print saying that the, the government wanted you to note that some appointed officers, including public house safety officers, public housing safety officers, and Alice Springs Town Council, rangers already search and seizure powers under the Restrictive uh, Acts and Bylaws. But this would open it up across the territory. to... um to basically, it doesn't go into the sort of training that these people would have, but more civilians being able to randomly search people on the street for alcohol and being up to tip it out, even if it's not opened. As I said,
0: yes. Yeah, so, so, so oh, mate, I'm not really familiar with the alcohol laws because I've never really uh, had cause to. But um, so, obviously, you're not allowed to drink in public. Uh, that's that's a rule, is it the law? <laughs> I think you're asking the wrong man here as well. I I haven't
1: haven't had alcohol for a couple of years, so I don't know. Uh, I think there's some – the CLP were going on about a a while ago. There used to be, at least in some places, some restrictions on like a 3K limit or something, 2K limit on uh, where you could drink from a a licensed premises. But there is some restriction on on drinking alcohol in open places. Um, I don't know what the specifics are, but, yeah. And they also have the PALIs, which is uh, the Police Auxiliary Licensing Officers. And now I think they operate in some towns outside the ter- out of Darwin. We don't have them where they can instruct you. They look at your license and instruct you that you have to go home to drink that alcohol. Um, I'm not sure under what legislation they operate from, but I think they were brought in around like 2017 or something like that, as well as a uh, way it having an auxiliary police force so that uh, frontline police officers weren't caught up in, in managing where people were drinking and trying to deter people from going out in the streets or into parks and drinking.
0: Yeah, okay. So I, I take it, I mean, am I re- reading between the lines, is this aimed at itinerants? I mean, is that what we're talking about here?
1: Yeah, I don't think they're going to follow you. Home, but, um, mm. I, yeah. Uh, I guess with a lot of alcohol legislation or or, or, um, rules that the government comes up with, I guess reading behind the lines, it is really, um, people would say it's really aimed at itinerance and it's it's partially race-based sort of legislation. I guess um, the government considers that uh, they're aiming it at the people who are causing the the, the problems or the the social uh, unrest in, in parts of the territory. Mm. but it is um I, it, it raised a few alarms from in our commenters on Facebook about having essentially uh, lesser trained or I don't as I said I don't know what the extent of the training would be because they haven't fully considered this of um going up to someone with alcohol and asking them to tip it out or forcing it it would be a fairly confrontational type of a situation a demanding nuanced situation I'd imagine to be going to someone if they've um, had a bit to drink and demanding that they uh, tip out their alcohol you take alcohol away from them. But we've already seen security guards on the streets of, well, Darwin. I think they're operating in other places that are in Alice Springs as well. So, you've got security guards going around the streets of Darwin doing um, perhaps what police officers in other places would regularly do. It's It's very interesting. I guess it's it's a it's a cause cause for concern when you when you start getting perhaps lesser trained people putting into these um, more confrontational style of situations with civilians.
0: Yeah, well, uh, the other thing I, I don't know is where's what's the government stance on the banned drinkers register? Are they are they happy with it or they're not happy? What's
1: they love it. They, they think it's good. I'm I do not know. We haven't really written about it, so I don't know. I'm not up to date with how many people are on it or what sort of research has been done to to decide whether it's an a, an effective measure or not. I know they made some changes to it in the last few months or six months to speed up the um, the rate in which the licenses are scanned. But the one thing I I do know about a little bit more is the the floor price in alcohol, which was which was the government brought it in. Uh, there was a lot of lobbying before it was brought in, and um, it's one of the centrepieces of what they say is their alcohol reduction measures. And But I did read a study, and um, there was a study put out by some university uh, researchers, and I did get to follow up and speak to them as well. You know, when they put out the drug testing results where they, they test um wastewater in various parts of australia yes yeah, yes and other things they came out with a short study using the the data that the i think it's the afp used to find out the drug taking mm-hmm. they actually when measured how much alcohol was in the the water in the wastewater, mm. and I think there was like maybe three or four sites in the territory. So the, they, for privacy reasons, they wouldn't say where they were. But I think one was Darwin, and there's probably one in Palmerston, and then there was one in some sort of remote area. And uh, their conclusion was that the there was a, a, a big decrease in the amount of alcohol drunk after the ba- the floor price on alcohol came in. But since then, it's crept up to almost the same levels as before. So people are drinking as much as they ever did in the Northern Territory, based on you know the the data they had, and that was that was their conclusion.
0: So h- how are they doing that? I mean, given that the whole idea of increasing the floor price was to, uh, or bringing in a floor price was to, uh, uh, you know, make it more difficult to get alcohol. <laughs> I thought.
1: Well, I think I think. The, the majority of the, the alcohol that really increased in price was the cheapest wine like the cask wine um and p- potentially other alcohol wasn't really affected by it so presumably like people just had to start buying a little bit more expensive alcohol but um that was uh the, that was what they're reading from the data was so it'd be interesting to see uh I don't think that when the government, um, put out a press release about the ban- the floor price a few months ago. <laughs> they didn't reference that, of course, because it's probably not something that they um, want to be spruiking if there's someone who has evidence counter to it being an initiative that actually cuts down the level of drinking. But I-, I found it fascinating. The NC Independent, from my knowledge, was the only uh, news outlet to report on it at the time. It was probably about six months ago.
0: Hmm. All right. Well, I think you and I are probably the most, uh, you know, the least uh, qualified people to actually talk about this given uh, you're, you haven't drunk for three years and I frankly have always struggled with the taste of alcohol. But um, <laughs> I, I, I wish I could, uh, you know, sometimes I think, you know, I don't know what genetic defect or or or, um, or benefit that I've got from this, this condition, but uh, it would be great to be replicated across the population, right, Because I don't think we'd have this problem then. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. Australians could probably
0: do with drinking less. Yeah. Anyway. Um, uh, okay. Well, let's let's move on to the next story, which uh, which may have some connection. Uh, NT population grows despite more Territorians re- relocating interstate. Now, what's happening yeah. there?
1: So this is. This is, uh, this was based on a report that was put out by the Treasury and the Finance Department this week. And it said that the population, um, for the June quarter had, we, we'd gone up to 250,635 people, which was 1,435 people more than the June quarter of the year before. So that takes us, that gave a population increase of 0.6%. Mm hmm. Compared to that, that quarter of the year before, whereas the national population went up by one point one percent, which I found surprising. But we're being told that uh, there's a shortage in housing. Rental properties have gone up, the like so, and the government did spook that there was a lot of people coming to the territory during the the COVID, uh, the height of COVID as well. But right. the much. We increased 237 people on the March quarter. Um, that was despite 746 people actually leaving the territory, mm. but we had a 590-person natural increase. So there was uh, 945 births and 355 deaths. Mm. So the June quarter figure for 2022 was 249,200, the same Period last year, I think from memory it, it dropped down to like around the two hundred forty-six thousand a couple of years ago as well. Mm. Um, and I think maybe some people came with during the COVID crisis. They did say in their report that uh, there was a higher than usual interstate uh, migration levels during the COVID nineteen sort of vaccination drive and uh, the resulting. Uh, so actually, sorry, some of it was driven by. People coming because of COVID and the fact that the territory was less locked down, but also one thing they identified was because of the vaccination drive, people were updating their Medicare residential records, hmm. which um, is the what the ABS used to estimate interstate migration. So I guess we actually and the government did actually have a campaign a while back, maybe a year or so ago, to try and get everyone to update their Medicare res- addresses so that mm. we got more GST. Mm. So maybe that worked out. I think there was a lucky door prize for that, if I remember, $5,000 or something.
0: Right, right. Yeah, well, um, interesting. So there's no no way of digging down on these figures to, fi- to see whether uh, this increase in population – is um, attributed to the the the, you know, the, the capital cities. Uh, I mean, or the you know the major city centres like Darwin and Alice Springs versus the um uh, some of the uh, outer places, uh, outer no, it, towns.
1: It didn't go down to that level, but it did make a passing reference to the fact that there was a you know a slow exodus or lessening of the population in remote areas of the territory and the people were moving to the larger areas. They didn't specify Darwin or Alice Springs, but there um, yeah, are definitely less people living in the more remote parts of the Northern Territory.
0: That's an interesting so, phenomenon, and I really want to get uh, um, uh, that uh, Dr. Andrew, uh, what's his last name, the demographer, um, uh, back on the podcast to talk about this because when I last spoke with him, he said um, he was talking about the fact that with a lot of these uh, remote communities uh, having good internet access now um, and having phones and and, and the like um, people or kids are, are seeing what what's actually out there in the big wide world uh, and he made mention of the fact that there is a significant degree of interstate migration from these communities, which I've found absolutely stunning. Uh, have you? Do you know anything about that? No. no,
1: I haven't heard that. Are you saying he's saying that people are moving from remote Aboriginal communities into interstate?
0: Yes, that's what he said. Now, um, you can correct me if I'm wrong the next time he's on there on, on the podcast. But uh, yeah, so. Um, you know, because I just assumed that, uh, you know, that they were gravitating towards the, the major city centres within the Territory, but um, apparently not.
1: No, that's really interesting. I, I There were figures that are not included in this article that talk, that did go into detail about specifically Aboriginal areas and the population growth. And uh, the uh, there were actually, like, the birth rate in Aboriginal areas was, uh, you know, remote regions was higher than for places like Darwin and Springs, but obviously people still living at a higher rate as well.
0: Yeah, Andrew Taylor, his name is, thank goodness. I just had an t- opportunity to quickly look him up. <laughs> uh, yeah, have you spoken with him before? No. Yeah, well worth doing, uh, Dave, if you get a chance. Uh, he's uh, He is a demographer, and uh, I think he actually grew up in a remote community as well. Um, but he has... Some very interesting things to say about the population in the territory and demographics. Yeah, that's fascinating. Hmm. Well, uh, all right. Well, let's wait and see what happens with that. Uh, Then the next uh, story that you had was Gambolanya residents file action for dilapidated houses, overpriced rentals, unlawful racial discrimination. And it got me wondering whether there was such a thing as lawful racial discrimination. But anyway, um Well, you
1: know how lawyers talk, Leon? That <laughs> <laughs> was their language. Um that's interesting. Yeah, these there's two Gumla Gunbalanya residents, which is also known as Owen Pally, who've uh, through their lawyers have filed a class action suit in the federal court citing excessive rental payments for unsafe, unsecured, and uninhabitable housing, which is something that Santa Teresa has also done. They started a little bit earlier off the top of my head, I think 2016, and um, according to these group of lawyers, that is now before the high Court with a likely hearing of, of next year. I had read that there, there had been some sort of outcome with that, that at least a couple of residents had been um given compensation and all the government was forced to pay back money to some residents of Santa Teresa, just not the whole class action group, but just a few of them for the, the judge found basically the houses were uninhabitable and thus that they should have been paying rent on them. In in this case, um, the the I think it's Phi Finney McDonald's senior associate, Madeline Ryan, that was a law firm, said her, her firm had filed the action on behalf of tenants who she said were paying ridiculous rents for housing that fall below the minimum standards, alleging the Housing Department chief executive officer failed to maintain public housing and provide Aboriginal communities. So she wanted to explain as background that uh, under the Northern Territory intervention, which I think off the top of my head was right around about 2007, the Commonwealth and the Territory governments forcibly ended Aboriginal community control of housing in seventy. 17- three remote Aboriginal communities across the Territory and took responsible for managing responsibility for managing their housing. So they're saying that the class action allows those people in the 73 remote communities of the Northern Territory to pursue together compensation for the inadequate housing. Now, she said that the case could have far-reaching impacts and applicants are seeking repayment of rent damages and, and orders for the repairs. She said, if the case is successful, it had the potential to not only improve housing conditions in the ET, but in all remote Aboriginal communities in Australia. Um, so she, there's two plaintiffs, but they, they quote from a man called Wand Meningiru, who lives in Gun Bologna and is described as a community leader and cares for his brother. And he said, uh, it was very complicated for Aboriginal people living in remote, remote communities and said, white people are given houses with air conditioning or people come and fix the air con, but he said they live in a hot area and have no air conditioning and he was scared about the, the health impacts of his uh, brother. So, and they went on to, um, she went on to say that the, she said the conduct um, applicants said amounted to unlawful racial discrimination. And we did contact the Territory Families Housing and Communities Department for comment. But uh, unfortunately they... Were not available to us and haven't been available to us for two and a half years so though must be a server error or something that they're not getting our emos
0: mm. yeah well i i don't know what to say about this other than uh let's just watch this space and see what happens um
1: yes it will be it will be fascinating what happens with this i think this is going to be a slow moving um process i would also. Um, Really interested to see the progress of this Santa Teresa because because I hadn't paid close attention to it, I thought of it had been completely resolved, but obviously not. Now it's made just the high court. I'm fascinated uh, about why it's got to the high court and what actual arguments they're they're running there, and what they what the government's actually contending in the opposition to that case.
0: Right. Yep. All right. Well, let's leave that one there. Um, Final story of the week, anti-Labour member for Arafura has passed away.
1: Yeah, that's that's correct. Uh, the Labour member for Arafura uh, died suddenly on Saturday, I understand. Now, as uh, discussed, we, we're just not going to name him for now because the family has, uh, has asked uh, that out of respect. Um, now, Natasha Files... Uh, informed uh, the territory with a statement on Sunday where she acknowledged his sudden death and said it was great sadness that she'd acknowledged his passing and family and friends. She said family and friends meant everything to him and and his generosity and care for people was enormous. Whatever he was doing, his wife, Ebony, his children and grandchildren were always close with thoughts and time. His family was his uh, most cherished moments. Now, he he lived on his homeland, and I don't want to screw this up, but it's Pitmajara in north of Melville Island, where he was elected um, for Labor in the Northern Territory Legislative Assembly for the first time in 2016, when he beat the CLP's uh, Francis Xavier Kurupu, and I think Francis Xavier was still in the CLP by that stage, and. Uh, he was re-elected again in 2020 but he had a he had a background in like community governance and he worked for the uh CDEP, like the community development Employments program and he's was a uh, he was elected to the australian Torres Strait islander commission's uh, regional council as deputy chairman when when that's still existed and then he went on to a different role with ATSIC before he, um, he took time became the tiwi island's local government chief executive officer um before the shire Amalgam- amalgamations in 2008 and then became the Tiway Island shire council director of community development being uh you know a few years before his um his election but he also then worked for anti-health and the labor party website says that he worked you know trying to tackle the dangers of ice and other illegal substances of young people in the Islands. and um yeah and he also famously in parliament was one of the the member labour members who um, complained about Robin Lamley uh, calling the Labour Party was it incompetent, and uh,
0: led to the then Speaker
1: Nari Kit banning the word incompetent in North Territory Parliament.
0: Oh yeah, right. We need to make a list of the words that have been banned. <laughs> um, yeah, it's certainly disturbing. So, uh,
1: as far as I know, he, he's the uh, only serving member in the Northern territory to have died mm-hmm. while in office although i did read somewhere else and i can't go back and find it where they said there was another there was another mla in the territory who died in office um he's morris rioli who yeah. famous Richmond footballer who died um in the uh, when suffering a heart attack in 2010, he'd been a member from 1992 to 2001. But uh, but uh, I don't have any other information on any other politician who's ever died while in office in the Northern Territory. So it's a it's a very sad day. For the family and Northern Territory, and there was obviously a lot of um, tributes offered to him from um, various people in the community, and politicians, and people saying, uh, "What a lovely, kind-hearted man." he was and had a, you know, he was an inspiration. I think Mark Turner said that he uh, he basically told him to, you know, go and grab, you know, life with both hands and to take opportunities and never, never, never be scared. Just uh, do away with fear. Fear is awful. Face it. Memories are sweet. Cherish them. Do away with anger. As angry as poison or eat away, you're, you're very essential. And uh, Mark Turner said he was an invaluable um, aspect of his life for inspiration of David drops of wisdom that he posted in the morning. So there you go.
0: Yeah, right. And so um, um, do, do do you know when they're going to hold a election no. for this? No,
1: there's been no further information put out by the government about this and perhaps whether there'll be a state funeral and that will happen. So uh we'll just have to wait and i presume that um it's uh, i don't know what the i it's interesting about when they have to announce a, a by-election which i imagine um you'd have to uh, announce it relatively soon and also uh, his funeral as well which i guess is is um complicated by the fact that uh, we're entering into the festive period as well yeah 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 hmm. Would, uh, when I die, Leon, what do you think you're going to say about me that people could quote?
0: I'll say that he was a quirky fella, um, <laughs> you know, who I would I would do a podcast with and he, you know, he was uh, speaking on behalf of the NT Independent but he would be wearing an NT News T-shirt, which is <laughs> <their>. <laughs> I've, I've got to
1: get, They made me buy this T-shirt so I've got to get my wear out of it as well. <laughs> Actually, uh, uh, when hear. we had a, a trivia night fundraiser, Mm. I wore an AT News t-shirt to mm. the Tribune. Remember, in, the owner of the playbook, Pike, laughed and found it the funniest thing in the world.
0: Yeah, yeah. Everyone's got a good sense of humour. Mm. Uh, sometimes too good. Um, <laughs> well, um, I think that wraps it up, mate. This might be the shortest uh, weekends with uh, Walshy or Woody we've ever had. Yeah, I don't, you know. I just
1: don't uh, wallow in my own glory like Chris does and just <laughs> rub <ram> it on. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so uh, I, I only ever get bylines that say independent staff anyway. So <laughs> why don't you just refer to me as independent staff rather than Woody and I'll feel a bit more comfortable and i will take me back to my like Robin role versus <laughs> yeah. Matt.
0: That's it, that's it. So um tell me um the the year that was. Uh, the <laughs> highlights and low lights
1: it's been an incredible year it's just it's hard to fathom how uh, the amount the amount of stuff that's gone on we've had um you're going to you're going to force me to google it but we had obviously a chief minister who resigned um very very unexpectedly earlier in the year um he was you know we all thought he was going to hold on to about this time which would have made him the longest serving chief minister in the um in the Northern Territory's history, that's a clear mark. And then, obviously, Robin Lamley, the member, independent member, Aaron Lawton, came out with um, her her claim in the following days, saying that Mr. Gunner was being investigated by Arcac along with others um, because of the so-called travel rorts that the NT Independent um, uh, had first published. And we've had, I guess, what you could say is one of the largest court cases in the Northern Territory history with um, Zach, the Constable Zach Rolfe, who mm-hmm. was acquitted uh, in, I think, early in May for the murder of uh, Kumbachai Walker in a, in uh, the shooting death during uh, what I guess you could easily say, accurately say is a failed bungled arrest in uh, Yondamu in 2000, late 2019, which um, happened just days before we got our, our new police commissioner. And this is still being played out, obviously, because we've started a coronial which may have, begun in september, august september something like that which is which was slated to run for three months and i think it's already run for three months and it's been um it's been adjourned until i think february next year and it plan to go on for a little bit longer uh and there is a not only is is that deconstructing what happened on the night but we're we're being um, we're being exposed to a lot of. Things that happened behind the scenes to do with uh, some of the very senior police members into the coronial investigation that police were doing on behalf of the coroner's office. Um, so that hasn't finished. Obviously, there's a lot of detail to come out. In the independent will be reporting on that, but also be fascinating to find out what the coroner says. There's been a lot of uh, focus in that coronial on. The so-called racist text messages sent between Zach wolf and the various other officers um, in the police sphere. We've also had a police commissioner who, um, I guess, in an unprecedented vote, there was one thousand of sixteen hundred police officers. I think took part in the survey into various things, but you know, it was basically pushed by some of the uh, officers wanting to have a vote of confidence in the in, um, uh, police commissioner, Jamie Chalker. So I think I've got that right. A 1,000 voted out of roughly 1,679.9% of them said they had no uh, no confidence in the police commissioner. Obviously, we don't know what the other 600 thought, um, but it is still quite extraordinary that it would come to a vote like that and that um, your action of the police commissioner was to... Well, he's now saying that it's completely changed, and uh, that the evidence that come out of the criminal has solved all the problems with morale in the force. It wasn't just, um, but uh, one of the main issues that you know had been driving that. And there was 150 word a space for 150 words where people, police officers, could comment about what their biggest issues were. And you know, a lot of it was focused around the arrest of Zach Rolfe, and we know that that was done really quickly, within four days, and that's still. Still, a lot of questions about that. So, trying to improve morale in the police force is, is difficult if that's identified as the main reason. How do you undo that? But there was also a lot of other things. You know, those police officers were forced, forced to work extremely hard over a long period of time dealing with COVID and border restrictions as well.
0: Hmm.
1: What has been some of your highlights of the year, Leon?
0: Well, I think all, all of the above, uh, to be honest with you. But uh, I, I'm just. Uh, I, I don't know. My, my mind right now is is thinking about crime, to be honest. About uh, crime? Yeah, yeah. Because we're going into the holiday season now, right? Um, crime has been an issue, uh, you know, f- for the whole year uh, and more. Uh, and it just seems to me. I mean, even I mean, we didn't talk about any of the stories because we generally don't talk about the crime stories um, that the Independent writes. But you had a myriad of stories. This week, on crime, you know, yeah, uh, and it just—I just get the feeling like we, we, we seem to be losing control of this thing. You know, it just feels like it's—it's it's out of control. I mean, I, my daughter works at Casuarina Square, at one of the uh, one of the clothing outlets there, and uh, every day she comes back with a story about what's been going on out there, and it's just. Uh, you know, it, it, it's a worry. Um, and it's not just there. It's at Charles Darwin University. You had a story about, uh, you know, six youths breaking into a car where somebody was actually in the car. Yeah. yeah was incredible. It, it feels like uh, it, this feels like what we used to hear stories about in Johannesburg, you know, mm-hmm. just with crime being rampant and people having to have anti carjacking devices. Uh, to, to, to protect themselves. I mean, it's just outrageous. As a society, I I think one of the primary functions of government is to keep the people, the population, safe. And it just feels like they are failing at this right now.
1: Yeah. I've, I've got to admit that when, when you first said this, I thought you said you feel like crying. I thought, oh, what have I done to upset Leon? He's going to cry on <laughs> the podcast we've but uh, crime has been an uh, incredible focus of uh, a lot of people in the Northern Territory I, I, especially Alice Springs it's become like the only thing that really seems to get talked of mm-hmm. there and there's obviously other places like Tennant Creek and then there's been you know lots of riots and problems in um, in water as well and it's, it's always really hard to get a gauge on it number one that I live in Darwin number two is that um, has the rise of social media impacted on our perceptions and other people's perceptions of crime? And you know, I always have to be very cautious uh, in considering the, the crime figures that police put out. But I don't think it's um I don't think you're going out on a limb to say that crime, especially property crime, seems to be mm. um out of control, especially in alice springs and the state of mind that that's put people in and the stories that you hear about gratuitous ram raids and just smashing windows and um and it seems maybe that it's been done by a relatively small amount of people i guess you could say um but it's it's the anti-independent we we haven't i guess dug into not only the, the underlying causes of it, but the, the strategies that the government is using to to deal with it and perhaps even more importantly, what's being done because a lot of things seem intuitive that you just presume are happening that may not be happening, especially in light of the fact that the government obviously says quite often that there's a uh, generational uh, problem and that uh, you know things are going to take a long time to solve, but I did hear Steve Edgington on your podcast a little while back talking about some of the basic things that could happen that don't don't seem to be happening in the, so it's just, it is, uh, it's hard to reconcile. It's hard for me to put my head around exactly what is happening, particularly in Alice Springs to the minute, but obviously it's happening in other places, including Darwin and, The extensive problem, like how many people are, you know, responsible for the majority of crime and exactly why people are behaving like this, especially young people. Um, Yeah, and has it got to a point that it's now so hard to deal with because the attitudes of the young people committing the crimes is so firmly against society and so, uh, so destructive and so uh you know just angry and rageful and uh, and they they, they just don't see any in any point in doing something else i guess or going down a path that the majority of people would want to take in life
0: well incidentally while you're talking i just i just recalled that matt garrick from the abc wrote a very long piece about this uh last week uh, and I saved it, uh, and uh, it was it, one, it was one of those pictorial ones, you know, that the ABC yeah, have the resources to do that looks really nice and reads well. Uh, and he delved into this stuff uh, in quite detail, and he talked yep. about the generational issues and all that type of thing, right? Which we've heard plenty of times, you know. Um, but I, and I've been I've been reflecting on that, Dave, and the conclusion that I'm coming to in my mind is that. I think the average, because, you know, you, every time you talk about this, you, you're in danger of going down this path of, you know, this, this this whole racial uh, um, overtones and things like that. But I think the, the average Territorian ha- would be sympathetic to the plight of these kids, right? In the sense that, you know, if they're coming from broken homes, or they're coming from homes where alcohol abuse is rampant and, you know, all that sort of other dysfunctions going on, put the domestic violence – Um, and they've got nothing to do and they've got no hope. Um, then this is, you know, this is a cause and effect situation, but I think that sympathy comes to an end when people's lives and property are put in danger. And that's where the social compact and that's where the fabric of society starts to unravel. I think. Um, Mm -hmm. And the government is trying to force this narrative down our throats about generational change. Um, But I think, well, certainly the people in Alice Springs don't feel protected, Mm -hmm. you know. You you can't have one without the other. You know, you've got to have, uh, you know, if you're going to bring the – the community with you in relation to the fact that this is something that's going to take some time to fix you've also got to at the same time figure out how you're going to protect society in the meantime and, and i don't think that that's happening
1: yeah okay I can, I can see people feel like that because they're being exposed to feeling unsafe all the time mm. and i think you made a good point about you know as humans often we we can be compassionate to people when we actually really understand um, what's going on for them. Um, and you know, I say this as a, it's fascinating to think about the uh, what's causing this and, and what the government is actually doing about it. And you you merge those things. where I, I accept on one hand that there's a you know broader generational change that needs to happen, but on the other hand, well maybe things could get sped up a little bit if other things were were done. You know. And, uh, like, it's easy for me to say it's fascinating as a journalist. Well, I could have done that and I could have been doing what Mark Carrick did. But, you know, Matt Carrick writes some really, really long things. But anyway, it is. it would be fascinating to find out what exactly can be done in the short term that's not being done to, to uh, you know, stop crime. And um, But at the same time, I also, obviously, I don't envy anyone in government and dealing with these sort of matters as well, because, you know, to, to, to say it's complicated is, uh, is, a, is an understatement as well. But um, I think you raised some interesting points about that. I did remember reading, and I won't go and delve into the details of it all, during uh, our reporting on the the Kuhn-Jai walker coronal, and I just read a couple of pages of his backstory about, uh, it was his medical history, actually, in a police report. And I read w- what his life was like leading up to to what happened, to him being killed. And I thought, how the hell do you ever um, function as a human, you know, function in a, I don't know, I can't even describe it really. I just looked at how, what, what had happened to him in his life. And I thought, yeah, wow, that's, in, that's incredible. Um, so, so I wonder what, uh, and I'm not trying to make excuses for people committing crimes because everyone is ultimately responsible for their own behavior, but, uh, it made me sit back and reflect, well, that explains some of it, but that doesn't mean that, uh, intervention in, in, in people's lives who have, who have had like, you know, really traumatic, brutal upbringings, um. That, that that there can't be intervention earlier in their lives and i think steve edgerton said and you know something along the lines that people start getting attention by the government or the police once they've started committing crimes and i know some of these kids committing crimes are really really young but um is that one of the things that's not happening well enough and i don't want to bang on like i'm an expert in this because because i'm not i I think it's an interesting discussion but um i think there needs to be more discussions and one thing the government i think does really a poor job of is actually explaining exactly what they're doing and you know talking about the reasons why they're making decisions they do and you talked about the generational change and how it's trotted out with no further explanation about exactly what they're doing one one important part of government is to explain to the people who fund and vote in government what exactly they're doing to keep their community safe
0: yeah well i i actually take it one step further Uh, i think i don't think people care what the government does uh, as long as they are safe or they feel safe you know uh you mentioned about the fact you know this are there some quick fixes so there's some things that they can do that will sort sort this out quickly I honestly don't think people care anymore. I think people would be quite happy for government to do whatever they need to do to fix this generational problem, provided at the very same time they keep the community safe and feeling safe, that people can go to shopping centres and shop without worrying about getting beaten up, uh, uh, you know, and, and things like that. Which is what's happening now, you know, that people can go to the town at night time. Uh, in Alice Springs without it being boarded up and without the, you know, uh, hooliganism around roundabouts and things like that. I mean, people want to go out and have a good time. They should be allowed to do that. And right now, it's just downright diabolical. Yeah. Uh, Yep. So, um, yeah, I mean, let's wait and see what Happens next year, but, uh, you know, I I just think this is where the the, the government has really failed the people of the Northern Territory. And I'm not suggesting for one minute that the CLP could have done a better job. I have no idea. I I have, you know, uh, uh, I have some skepticism about that. But, you know, Chris talks about the fact that this is not, this shouldn't be a a, a partisan issue. It should be a bipartisan issue. It should be a whole of government, uh, a whole of, uh, you know, a, a whole of parliament issue that we yeah. that, that they figure out what they need to do because these kids need to be taken off the streets mm. i mean uh, th- that to me is an, is 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 uh is a baseline issue they need to yeah. be taken off the streets and i'm not suggesting that they need to be put back in homes uh, that are dysfunctional but they need to be taken off the streets right now i'm according to matt garrick's article they're being taken off the streets and they're being put in these houses um but there's no compulsion for them to stay so they just leave
1: yeah i need i need to check out that article i think probably we talk about labor and and the clp and unfortunately yeah as chris points out chris and i have spoken about this a fair bit that it too too often gets broken down on these ideological lines, whereas we we need a an evidence based approach that works across you know, electoral cycles as well. There was um, some apparently great work being done in Burke in outback New South Wales, where they had, um, dramatically dropped the, the amount of youth crime. And I had read up about it, and I I can't remember the details um, of that right now, but there seems to be some models whether they're working in other places as well. I don't know whether they're replicatable to transplant specifically to the Northern Territory or not, but there are examples of other places in Australia that have had rampant youth crime problems that have been... Uh,
0: yeah. Matt um, actually touches on that. He actually yeah, touches okay. on his article. He talks about Carnarvon in, in Western Australia and Northwest WA and Northwest Queensland that seem to have the same kinds of issues that we are having here in the Territory. Um, and he, he goes into some, some discussion about how social media is playing a part in all of this, which is what is causing the kids to, to do more and more dangerous things because they can post it up on and see how many likes they get and that type of thing, you know? So damn, damn TikTok, not only on TikTok. Well, well, you know, whatever it is, uh, these are the cause and effect issues. Um, and government needs to get on top of it i mean i don't know how they do that but they need to keep people safe and that's the fundamental failing here that i see
1: yeah well i'll have to check out Matt garrick's very long article and just never admit to him that i read it uh, but i might (laughs) learn something i might be able to like talk about things that i know more about once i read his article
0: yeah, no, no, you're doing a good job. Dave, look, uh, thank you very much for your uh, contribution to our society through the work that you do in the anti-independent. Uh, I, I, know you're not the most loved, uh, organization in government circles, but, um, I think you, you do a great job. And certainly there are a lot of people out there in the territory that, um, who have told me that they get their news from you guys first. Uh, and they listen to the podcast uh, if they don't like reading the news. So <laughs> <laughs> <that's> a,
1: <laughs> Do you think I'm they like? It.
0: you think they like Chris more or they like me more? Oh, you by by you know by a uh, long shot. You know that's what I say. That's what people. That's what people say. Yeah, well, for a start, Chris is a foreigner, you know, and that's always been a, <laughs> an an issue here in the territory. So <laughs> yeah, sounds
1: like some, like distorted John Wayne type, doesn't he? <laughs> And he no, looks even worse in person. He looks like some sort of sleazy private investigator. So. Yeah,
0: right. Well, I, I think you've defamed him enough on the podcast. We'll wait to hear what he's got to say about it. But, um, I just
1: want him to listen to what I just said. He's <laughs> 8,000 kilometres away and not be able to do anything about it. The Christmas present, Chris.
0: Good on you. Yeah, well, uh, you have a good Christmas, Dave, and, uh, and uh, a happy and safe New Year. And uh, I, I look forward to catching up with you when you get back uh,
1: next year. Thank you very much, Leon. Thanks for the time to, um, to give us on the NT Independent to be able to, to talk about the news and things that go on behind the news and um, help, I guess, further our cause and publicise the fact that we exist because uh, obviously we have our struggles with government uh, not giving us access. And this has been a platform that, um, you know, people have been able to access our our news and hear about us as well the, you've been a lot of a lot of time and it, it's it's fun to come and chat with you and pete as well and i hope you have a good christmas and you as well
0: thank you mate it's our pleasure well uh this is me signing off leon Logan Nathan, for the territory story podcast weekend edition you've been uh, listening to me and david wood who is the one of the, um, well, the only staff member, he tells us, uh, at the NT Independent uh, online newspaper. We will catch you next year. Thank you very much for your support listening to this uh, podcast. And um, oh. we look forward to um, joining you again in the new year. You've been listening to the Territory Story Podcast with Leon Logan Nathan and Peter Gowers. For more episodes, search Territory Story Podcast on all leading podcasting platforms or go to TerritoryStory.com. The Territory Story Podcast, thanks to Opie Dennis Digital Marketing, your local digital marketing agency.